0: O dawn, brightness of everlasting light and sun of righteousness, come and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Come, Holy Spirit, Christ be present and walk among your people. Open our ears and our hearts to your coming. Jesus' name. Amen. So today we continue with our Advent sermon series. There's something about Mary, starring Mary, as you may have guessed, the mother of Jesus. Last week we heard from the book of Revelation, chapter 12, about the woman of the apocalypse, clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, crown of stars, on her head. She gives birth, a cosmic dragon tries to destroy it but fails and is thrown down to earth, which is not something you see every day. But it's an image meant to convey the deeper cosmic struggle underneath the Christmas story. And this week we drop back down from that cosmic vision of Revelation. We come back down to earth where this drama actually plays out on the ground and then we come down to a little backwater town called Nazareth you can't get any earthier than that it's off the beaten path it's away from the centers of power and prestige and money it's far off in the boonies as we like to say in rural Alberta growing up so here an angel visits a heavenly messenger The messenger tells this young woman, Mary, that she's going to give birth to a child, Jesus, even though she's never been with a man. Note, though, that it doesn't say that God will impregnate her like the Greek god, Zeus, as if you could do a test to detect divine DNA under a microscope, but notice that the angel says that the Holy Spirit will overshadow her, and she will carry this new life. The Holy Spirit, God's life-giving, universe-creating power, will generate within her this new life, a royal child and a future for her people, all without a male donor. She's terrified at first, but ultimately says, yes. And the rest, as they say, is history or theology or both. Now this whole scene represents one of the most popular obstacles to many of us when it comes to Christianity. The idea that Jesus was born of Mary, a virgin. And the objection tends to go like this, I know how human biology works, reproduction requires one sperm and one egg, and one of these two is missing from this whole picture. And these are usually intelligent, thoughtful people using their God-given reason. And unfortunately, it's often the case that when this little Jenga block is removed, you know that old game Jenga, where you remove the block from the ground, from the bottom, the whole tower of faith seems to tumble down to the ground. And you know, I get it. I shared the same doubts for a long time. On the day of my baptism even, at 20 and beyond. As time's gone on, though, I've had less and less trouble. Not because I think that there's some sort of airtight scientific argument for it, but because, of, because I've become much more content with simply resting in the mystery, trusting in the deeper truth of the thing beyond simple sight and scientific investigation. And besides, If we're honest, a virgin birth seems like relatively small potatoes of believability in comparison to much much more incredible miracles in the Bible anyway. Having said all of the above, however, the question of the virgin birth often takes us away from an equally important part of this story. There's something equally, if not more, miraculous than the birds and the bees question. There's a lesser-known miracle in this text if we just pay attention. What I'm talking about here is what Mary says at the end of the passage. Here I am, she says. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Now that doesn't seem like a big deal. We've all, or many of us, maybe not all of us, I don't know. Don't mean to speak for everybody, but we've heard this Christian Christmas story so many times that we sort of miss it. I was reading a children's Christmas book this week, and it paraphrades Mary's words like this. Mary smiled, it said. I'm glad to do whatever God needs me to do. And she makes it sound like some sort of happy, lovely thing. But a few things in this text suggest something other than just a happy, lovely thing. First of all, the women in Mary's culture are generally engaged and married around age 10, 11, 12, meaning not only is she young, she's never been pregnant before. I've never been pregnant before either, in case you didn't know that about me. (laughs) But I have lived in very close quarters with a pregnant person, and have been present at three births. And from observation, I can tell you that this is not a fun nor an easy thing. Combine that with the fact that for Mary, there's no morning sickness meds, no epidural, no modern medicine of any kind, and you have an event that's not just easy, obedient smiles and sunshine, it's a potentially deadly thing. So I think it's safer, maybe, to read a little bit, a little bit of anxiety in Mary's voice when she says, yes, a little bit at least. So that's the first issue. The second issue is probably the bigger one, though. And the issue is what this new baby will do to her life. The writer Philip Yancey tells a story about a young woman who once had the courage to stand up in front of their relatively conservative church congregation. She stood to admit something that everybody already knew. We had seen her hyperactive son running up and down the aisles every Sunday, Jenkin writes. And Cynthia had taken the long, lonely road of bearing a child out of wedlock and caring for him after his father decided to skip town. Cynthia's sin, he said, was no worse than any of ours, and yet, as she told us, it had such conspicuous consequences. She could not hide the result of that single act of passion stuck out as it did from her abdomen for months until a child emerged to change every hour of every day for the rest of her life no wonder the jewish teenager mary felt greatly troubled she faced the same prospects as cynthia even without the act of passion even without the act of passion, we tend to skip over or forget the fact that Mary's engaged to Joseph when she becomes pregnant. Engaged, not married, which you'll likely know was a scandalous thing, even in our own culture, up until only a few decades ago. And even if she were able to get her fiancé, Joseph, on board, which the Gospel of Matthew suggests, the I-swear-it-was-the-Holy-Spirit explanation would probably elicit the same kind of disbelief then as it would now. Like the woman in Yancey's story points out, pregnancy is the kind of thing Mary could hide for a while, but it would have to come out sometime. Mourning sickness and extending tummy would eventually give it all away. Everybody would know soon enough. It's not the kind of thing you can hide. And so one writer says, tongue in cheek, something to the effect of, no wonder they skipped town to have the birth in Bethlehem instead of Nazareth. I'd say they were glad to get out of town given the months of whispering from the neighbors. Because you see, in saying yes, Mary's agreeing not only to the physical and emotional toll of pregnancy, which is true, she's agreeing to the possibility of denunciation by her neighbors and friends, ostracization from her family, As well in saying yes she gives into the likely heartache of rejection and the certain shame of a ruined reputation essentially she gives up everything you know the angel says greetings favored one and it makes you wonder about God's enemies if this is what happens to God's favored ones like Mary. So the virgin birth may be a difficult thing to get our heads around, but perhaps there's an even more astounding miracle in this text. It's the fact that Mary says yes. Because none of this happens without her yes. She consents to the Spirit. It's remarkable not only because it would change her life for good, which any child would and any child does, but most remarkably that it would also cost her everything else. And she does it all based on the presence of the Holy Spirit and a simple promise from God. The Lord is with you, says the angel. Don't be afraid. It's that promise that everything she would be put through for this baby, all of it would be worth it in the end. Even if she didn't get to see it with her own eyes. It's a lesser known one, I know, but it's a miracle, nonetheless, to say yes. That's what we miss, I think, when we see biology is the only question in this passage. And this is the important thing that we miss, but we need to hear. We often see blessings in life in terms of good outcomes, prosperity, happiness, comfort, smooth sailings, soft beds, feet up, rum and eggnog, every day. We see spirituality as an add-on or a tool to make good lives even better. But this whole scene with Mary suggests otherwise. It suggests that God's blessings, God's work and God's purpose in our lives is more like carrying and delivering a baby. The early church saw Mary not only as the mother of Jesus, but as the paradigm, the first example of what it means to follow Jesus. Her saying yes, is shaped like the cross. It's a cross-shaped yes. Meaning that the new life that God promises will be amazing, transformative, deeply joyful, but like any child, it'll take deep discomfort, worry, and stepping out of our comfort zones. Her yes says it's going to cost us. It's going to change us like any baby does. Maybe that's why we focus on the conception part instead of the gestation part. Because that's the easy part to grapple with. And you know, it's something that we've been willing to trust as a community of faith, in fact, because becoming a church that's open and drawing different people and In order to let the spirit in we've had to have the courage to give up important things things that bring us comfort it's taken courage it's taken faith and it's even cost members believe it or not but these are contractions these are birth pangs but we've seen the new life with our own eyes and of course we've heard the racket of the Lord in the form of hyperactive children. But that's just one small taste, one little microcosm. Like welcoming a new baby into our lives, if we want to gain new life, life in the full, life eternal, life that lasts, we have to be willing to say yes. Let it be with me. According to your word. Thy kingdom come, not my kingdom come. We have to be willing to say it over and over and over again. It means having the courage, like Mary, to have our lives completely rearranged to make room for Christ in our midst. Whether as a church, as families, or as individuals, to have our own wills, plans, dreams overshadowed by the Most High. By the will, the plans, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. So this Advent season, you're invited to consider your own life. What's the courageous thing God's asking of you, your family, or your church, to bring Christ's love to birth? What's your seemingly impossible yes? Because, like Mary, God's call in our lives can mean sacrifice, It can mean suffering, and it can even mean shame. And like any other child, it means giving up control of the ultimate outcome. Faith when we don't see the other side. But the good news is that like with Mary, the God who calls us to new life, this God has promised to be with us for us. No matter how big the obstacle, no matter how terrorizing or impossible the call may be, the promise to us is the same promise the angel gives to Mary. With God, all things will be possible. We can say yes, knowing that we're not alone, and will be given all the strength we need so brothers and sisters let's all look to Mary for courage in our own calls no matter how big no matter how small and even more so let's look further beyond her pregnancy to Christ who not only calls but gives us the strength to follow our calling, expecting, trusting in the lesser-known miracle of the yes to the difficult call. Here I am, Mary says. Let it be with us, each of us, as it is with her, according to God's word. And may each of our hearts prepare him room. Amen.